theyeshiva.net. Okay, page 188, second column, the paragraph, the Let's remind ourselves to flow. before the feet of the king and pleads to him based on the premise that the Megillah is also a parable for the relationship between the Jew and Hashem, and asks the question, what then is the symbolism of falling before his feet when he has no image, no corporal, God is not a corporal physical reality with the image or visage of a body. So he says, to understand this, we first have to explain the essence of tefillah and how every person could daven. Very brief question that he asks, quite a, quite a telling question. What is davening and how can every person daven? Like, how, how can a person, how can, how do you say, his words, which actually, in an explicit way, he doesn't get back to that question. He starts over the Maimah, what is davening and how can every person daven? And somehow have to infer from the discussion and the conversation and the explanation what the answer to that is. I'm just mentioning that. What is davening and how can a per- every person daven? I think it becomes pretty clear, but it's interesting. He doesn't, usually the questions are addressed, but here he does not address explicitly the answer to the question. In order to understand this, he says that the Jewish people are called Knesset Yisrael, which means the gathering of Israel, Knesset Yisrael, which refers to not only every Jew individually as part of Knesset Yisrael, but also all of the Jewish souls collectively in their source are called Knesset Yisrael. And he says they have very many names, many, many symbol, symbolic names. Sometimes Knesset Yisrael is called Rachel. Sometimes Knesset Yisrael is called Esther. There are other names, but here he's addressing these two names of uh, matriarchs of Jewish history and of the Jewish people. And he says there's a big difference. Rachel represents Knesset Yisrael when it's true spiritual energy and creativity is actualized, it's revealed. And therefore, what it means is in every single Jew there is a very revealed and a passionate relationship with his or her source. Lameve echad echad. I want to be one with the oneness. And that's comparable to Rachel, to the sheep, to the you, who, uh, who, um, who easily and with, with, with serenity and tranquility uh, aligns itself with its master. That's Rachel. But then there is a state of Esther, which represents concealment. The word Esther in Hebrew, of course, comes from the word Hester, which means a hiding place or a, a concealed, something that's concealed, eclipsed. As the Gemara says, Esther is rooted in the Pasuk in Parshas Vayelech. Vanoichi haster, aster, esponai, bayoimahu, I will hide my face, my presence on that day. And this true quality, the inner connection, the inner harmony, the inner oneness of the Jew with oneness is concealed. So then the mistake is that sometimes a person feels if something is not revealed, it doesn't exist. And he says, that's a mistake. It's It's not like the world believes. When he says the world, he probably doesn't only mean the whole world. It means the inner world of many people, the world, the Welt, the Weltzak, as they say in Yiddish, the world says that if something is not revealed, it doesn't exist. 
He says that's not the case. Sometimes that which is concealed is much more powerful than that which is revealed. Which is just uh, in parentheses, it's a, you know, today this language is very common, but a few hundred years ago, that that which is concealed, in other words, there could be a whole, a whole uh, dimension of self that is Bebchines Hester. So just because you're not aware of it, you're not cognizant of it, and it may not impact you in a very conscious way, doesn't mean it's not there. On the contrary, it could be it's as powerful as conscious things, and it could be even more powerful. You know, this observation today is not new for people because it's, uh, you know, all of the disciplines of psychoanalysis and psychology, or many of them, are based on this premise of Hester. But uh, when this was said in 1797, Purim Tovkuf you shouldn't take it for granted. The Nishvi developed out that what is, what is real is Behis Galus. Sometimes it's exactly the other way around. And the same is true. It's true. Some, so we often talk about it in terms of dysfunction or challenges or toxicity or trauma or pain or, or anguish or loneliness or whatever it may be. But it's also even more true in a positive way that very often a person is unaware of how many, you know, there's dark secrets and there's also bright secrets. <laughs> It's not only dark secrets. The idea is that there are, there are beautiful secrets too. You know, we talk about the dark secrets and the dark skeletons and demons and ghosts that are hiding in your closet and it's time to shine the flashlight to get out the infections. That's on one level and that's true. But even more powerful are the good secrets. Not the skeletons, but the angels. Let's call them the angels that are inside. And they're also, they're not dark, they're bright, but they're secretive, they're concealed. So he says, just because we don't feel it, because something is not bizgalus, never ever think that it's not here, there. You have to get to it. We have to excavate it. We have to dig for it. We have to find it. But it's there. And he said, never ever doubt that the relationship, that the ratzoyin, the desire, the yearning that Rachel represents, that the Jew wants to be in a full relationship with full harmony and oneness, as he says, lemeve echad be'echad, to be one with one is not there. Elamai, it's in a state of Hester, as the Pasuk puts it, a rose among thorns. And the thorns can eclipse it, the thorns can block it, the thorns can obstruct your access to it. Besides eclipsing it, you want to get close, and the thorns don't allow you easy access to it, which is all those things in the world, in a person's life, that may obstruct obstruct the rose. And Esther, he says, where is Esther? Esther is always found by Yom Hahu. The Anoichi Haster, the state of Esther, is found, that's how he finished the first paragraph, is found in by Yom Hahu, which he doesn't explain here what he means, that Esther is by Yom Hahu. He says, Vahavin, understand this? Still get back to it, even though it's also not very uh, explicit and needs some explanation. So now he starts... He starts the, the next stage of the explanation. The Hine, what do we mean when we say Esther? Is concealed by Yoimahu. Yesh pchine nikre by Yoimahu. Vyesh pchine nikras by Yoimaza. Vyesh pchine nikras by Lailahu. Vyesh pchine nikras by Lailahaza. There are four states. There's what we call by Yoimahu, which literally means that day. There's what we call by Yoimaza, which is this day. There's Balai which is that night, and there's Balai which is this night. 
four states. And of course, in the Tanakh, you will find all of these four expressions. So these four expressions are extremely significant. They're profound. Because they're not just four expressions about day or night. They each represent a different state of mind and a different state of consciousness. The Hinaiksiv, we have a Pasik in Halal in Tehillim. Zehayoim Asa Hashem This day Hashem made, let's rejoice and celebrate with it. Here it's Zehayoim, it's this day. Uksiv, we have in Parshas Bashalach, we say it every morning, when the Jewish people cross through the sea. Vayoysha Hashem Bayoim Hahu. Hashem has saved the Jewish people on that day, on that day. Uksiv, in Parshas Boy, describing the night of Pesach, the night of the exodus of Egypt. This night should be the night that is designated for protection and designated for celebration and redemption. Uksiv, and then of course we have in the Megillah, the beginning of chapter 6 of Esther, Megillah's Esther, Balayla, Hahu, Nadadashnas Hamelach. On that night, the, 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 the king was experiencing uh, uh, insomnia. His, his sleep was not stable. Nadadashnas Hamelach means his sleep was, was waggling, it was swaying, like noided back and forth. In other words, it was not steady. He couldn't fall asleep. He fell asleep and he got up and he fell asleep and got up. That's Balai Lahahu. Lel Shemurim is Pesach. Ah, you're saying this was also Pesach. Very good. In the time, this was the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This is the time of Achashverosh. Yeah. Very good. Both happen on Pesach. That's true. Because the Gzeri, the edict of Haman came out when? On the 13th of Nisan, right? It says the scribes of the king were summoned on the 13th of Nisan to write the decree. And that's when it came out. So, Mordechai hears about the decree, either Yud Gimel Nisan or Yud Dalad Nisan, Erev Pesach. And Esther tells him to uh, issue forth a fast, to make a fast for three days. Those three days, right, are either... Yud Gimelness and Yudaladness and Tasvavnissen, or Yudaladness and Tasvavnis and Tazayanissen, including the first day of Pesach, including the first night of Pesach. And the night, Balaila Hunada Dashnasamelech, Esther goes in on the third day to the king, and she asks him to come to the feast. And the king can't sleep at night. Balaila Hunada Dashnasamelech. It's also on Pesach. Very good. So when you look at it, it's just you know, it's, it's a very interesting observation because it shows you, it's, it's like a bird's eye view of Tanakh. You know, you look, it's an expression. But really, the Balatanya is saying, these are not just expressions. It represents four states, four madregas. Four. When I was reading the first time these, uh, the four things, so before I read further, I wanted to see if I know where uh, where each one says. So actually, what came to my mind first was in Parshas uh, in Parshas Yisroi, Bachodesh Hashlishi, Bayoim Hazeh, Midbar Sinai. Right, that's where it says Bayoim Hazeh, Balayla Hazeh. In Parshas Boy, it says Vaachlu Es Habasar, Balayla Hazeh, Al Matzus Umroim Yechlu. 
which is the same night of Pesach. You should eat the Pesach Balayla Hazer. Ah, Manishtana Halayla Hazer Mikal which works very well with Lel Shemurim, which is Laila Hazer, right? So Manishtana is a lashon of Chazal. So that's obviously, you know, stems from the lashon of Torah. But for Ze, for Yom Hazer, he brings Ze Hayom Hashem. For Yom Ahu, he brings Bayosh Hashem Bayom Ahu. For Balayla Hazer, he brings Pesach Lel Shemurim, and Balayla Ahu brings Purim. By Esther it says, "Vanoichi haster aster ponai bayoyim hahu," which is like "Vayoyish Hashem Yisrael bayoyim hahu vayaminu b'Hashem b'Mayshavter." V'ha'inyan, the significance of this is kibchin ezehu lenoichach. Zeh, which means this, is always referred to when you're having a conversation with somebody lenoichach. Lenoichach means somebody right in front of you. Somebody present in front of you, which means you're speaking in second person. What's the proof for this? Kamashakasov, like we have the Pasuk, by the Shira after they cross the sea, they say, This is my God, and I will adore him. So Chazal say on this, and Rashi brings, that it was like every single Jew was Marabed's boy, was pointing with his finger, Rashi says, a maidservant by the sea, by the Yamsov, by Kriya's Yamsov, saw what Yechaskel didn't see. Yechaskel couldn't say Zekeli. In other words, the revelation was so powerful, it was so intense, that they could say Zeh. The Gemara says at the end of Masachas Tainus, that La'asid lovei, Asid HaKadosh Baruch Hashem is going to make a dance, a tensel, a mochel, for the tzaddikim, and he's going to be in the middle of the machal, and everybody is going to point. Marabed's boy, he brings a pasuk. Hine elekenu ze kivinu loyveyoshienu ze Hashem kivinu loynagilav inisbucha b'shawasa. I can only point my finger to something if it's right in front of me. If something is in a different place, a different state, a different country, a different continent, a different planet, a different world, a different realm. The word Zeh would not apply. Zeh is L'noichach. You're here. I say, look, Zeh, here it is. This is it, right? That's Zeh. Shehubchines is galus. In abstract language, Zeh basically means something is revealed, expressed. You have it in the physical sense, but the concept is that it is galus. Commercial melech basavadam would be like the state of a king, a human king of flesh and blood, all of the countries, all of the provinces under his malchus, the various regions, Medina, like it says by Achashverish, that Sheva Meyeva Esra Medina, it doesn't mean separate countries because there was one king. It was all part of the Persian Empire, but it means various provinces with different cultural characteristics in each province. So he says, all of the provinces under his royalty, are loyal to him, they serve him, they surrender to him. As a result, not only of hearsay, but because they see, they experience the presence of the king, and that has a tremendous impact. The Ru'iyah of the Melech. Remember, it's hard for us to relate to these Mashalim because of where we live and how we live. But in the 1700s, every Russian Jew and every Russian citizen, the monarchy was not just 
somewhere in uh, Petersburg. The monarchy was a very real presence. The marshal of a king was a very common marshal because it was the bread and butter of society. Society at that time was governed, much of society was governed by monarchs. This is only a few years after the French Revolution in 1789. This is 1797, and the French Revolution has not yet hit Russia. Napoleon didn't even attempt to come to war against Russia, which was only in 1812. So the metaphor of a king is a very powerful metaphor throughout all of Chazal, all of Medrashim, all Sifri Kabbalah, all Sifri Machshav, all Sifri Chsidus, because it was part of the culture. When you said Melech, you know, we look at Melech, the Queen of England, Eichmer Queen. I mean, it's more symbolic, you know, the Buckingham Palace, Meloif, Megate, Medos, but it's symbolic, it's for tourists, and for the name, the reputation, and also for media coverage about the royal family. What would you do without it? But in terms of the real uh, awe of a king, the king of Denmark, a king here, a king there, doesn't have that same uh, that same presence, whether positive or scary. So, but the king itself, there's hearsay. People grew up. There's a king, but then there is when they sought when the king came out. It was a different type of experience, a different type of awe, a different type of dread. Now, this is irrelevant if the king was a benevolent dictator or a tyrant. Obviously, then there was a different level of fear. But the point here is even the, the, the one, most wonderful king, to seeing it is a completely different experience. That's the most, what would be in the Nimshul? The concept of Zez, it's the relationship that happens when there's the Hisgalus. There's the full revelation of Elokusiyas Baruch of Hashem of godliness. Ki'ilu ein of as though your eyes would perceive him, and he says as though, because the divine is not something that the eyes detect, not because it doesn't exist, but because of the limits of the eyes. What the eyes detect is only a f- certain limited, filtered element of reality. So he says, But the point of just like when I see something, as we say, seeing is believing. Here it is. I could say, So when there is a revelation of godliness to the point that a person could experience it as much with the same certainty and absoluteness and sense of realness, like something you see, that's when you could use the word which is why by Kriyas Yamsov they could say, because there is such a hisgalus, and the night of Pesach, as we'll see, is referred to zeh, and we say It's a day to rejoice because it's it's zehayah. What does this mean practically in a person's life? It means What does it mean that Hashem is real? It means that the whole world, you look at the whole universe, negdoy, and His presence is kaayin. The world doesn't occupy a separate autonomous space outside of him, but rather it's kain. It's like it melts away in nothingness in his presence. Mm-hmm. What you really is seeing is you're seeing the divine in everything. and his boy what are you talking about? It's explained And not just b'makamach. Probably here it has to be In many other places. Our universe is always defined as yesh me'ayin. Something from nothing. So you're telling me that in a state of Zeh, the whole world is Nechshav Ka'ayin. On the contrary, our world is called Yesh Me'ayin. Ex nihilo, something from nothing. 
The reason Torah uses this language, when he says here, Torah, you don't have the expression, yesh in a Tanakh, but Torah, he means here, all the Sfarim of, uh, of Machshav and Kabbalah, already the Ramban, for example, the Rishonim, the Rishonim used this, the Ramban in the opening of Bereshis, Bereshis Bara, the Ramban says, what's Bara, Bara is yesh in something from nothing. And so in many other sources. It says, Torah always employs the language of humanity. Our physical eye cannot detect what we call ayin because when I don't see it, it's not here. So I call it nothing. I call something that which I see and that which I don't see, it's like, it's nothing. So what's yes, and Torah wants to address that state, that condition. So we call the world yesh me'ayin. Because really, it's very strange. Who's this ayin that the world comes from? <laughs> Something from nothing. Really, from nothing? The world came from nothing? Abra, Kadabra, Kadu from nothing? This some magician who pulls out of his sleeve everything he pulls out from nothing? What's this yesh me'ayin from nothing? It comes from you. It comes from Hashem. It's yesh me'ayin. It seems very strange. It happened from nowhere. It's the Big Bang exploded from nothing. So this is what the Balatanya is addressing, that from the human perception, what we feel is real, is what we see with our eyes. That which is invisible, we define as nothing, even though in reality it may be the exactly the exact opposite. <laughs> that really we should define this world, ayin miyesh. <laughs> it's ayin miyesh. What says ayin miyesh? Yes, it's something, but legabi the yesh, it it loses its independent significance. Would be like, uh, like he'll say soon the example which he often always, which he often brings the example of a ray of light in the solar core. In the solar core, a ray of light. In this room, you'll open the Venetian blinds. A ray of light is very significant. Travels from the sun all the way to the earth, and it gives us light. But in the solar core, there is still a ray of light there. If the ray of light leaves the sun, it's also in the sun. But it's obviously ayin. What do we mean? Ayin doesn't occupy any space in the source, in the essence. So what's significant is the real yesh. But but from our perspective, what we see is yesh, and the ayin is invisible. So we call it ayin. We say it's nothing because I have no, I have no oisius for it. I don't have the kalim. I don't have the vessels, the instruments to be able to detect it. My eyes look and I see nothing. Very, very powerful distinction. This is expressed in the story of Mesechus Brachas, Davchav Ches. The Gemara tells a story that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki was considered the greatest leader and sage of his time. He is the man who led the transition. Why is he so important in history? Because Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki was the person who led the transition from Beis HaMikdash Judy to Beis HaMikdash Era, post Pesach era. He was the head of the Sanhedrin during the destruction of the Bayez Sheni, as the Gemara describes at length in Gittin about his meetings with, his meeting with Vespasian, Aspasianus, who was first the Roman general and then the Roman emperor. He met Rabbi Yechonah ben Zag, asked him for the three famous things, a doctor for Reb Tzadik, and not to destroy the dynasty of Rem Gamliel, and to spear Yavna and its sages, not to destroy the center of learning and the Sanhedrin. So Rabbi Yechida ben Zaka was the person who literally led the transmission period, transition period, thank you, from 
Beis days to post Beis days. Now everybody understands that the trauma of Hurban Beis was incredible, right? The, uh, we could have a little, a little hasaga, a little hasaga, because past generation, although in a different way, experienced something, uh, I'm not going to say smaller or larger, I don't know if these things could be compared with quantitatively or qualitatively, both Akaveya, uh, you know, they both uh, have uh, transformed Jewish history, but in such a state, when the center focused on Eretz on Yerushalayim, the Beis Hamikdash, the Sanhedrin, everything was destroyed. Rabbi Yechina ben Zakkai was the responsible for this uh, maiver, for this transformation. When he passed away, the Gemara says in Brachas, Chavchas, his students were there. And they asked him for a message. They asked him to, 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 to bless them, to pray for them. So Rabbi Yechina ben Zakkai said these words. Yehirat. This was his message to his students. May it be the will of Hashem that the awe, the fear of Hashem, should be to you like the fear of people. So they said, Rebbe, this is all you could tell us. You know, we should be as afraid of God as we're afraid of people. I mean, come on. It seems so anticlimactic. So Rabbi Yechonah ben Zakkai said, Halavai, don't underestimate my blessing. And he gave them an example. He says sometimes people do things and they're, and then they think somebody may have seen it. <laughs> you know, there was a video camera. So, and they say, please, I hope nobody saw it. If somebody would have been there, they would have never done this. So he said, if you can just relate to Hashem, just on that level, not more than a person, but as much as a person watching. Just like a presence watching, that's a pretty powerful prayer. In other words, Yerushalayim on the most basic level means just God is here. God is really watching you. God sees what you do. That itself, Rabbi Yechid ibn Zakai felt, is a very profound experience in this life. That a person could really experience Hashem as though there's a person watching. What is this based on? This is the concept of Yesh Me'ayin. We live in a world of Yesh. God is Ayin. Why do we call it Ayin? Not because it doesn't exist, but because we can't see it. So we say it's nothing. It doesn't feel like anything. You can't compare it to something tangible that you see. And that's why he's blessing him. He's blessing him. Which made a bus of Adam. That's the concept we call Zehayoyim. On two levels. Yoim is day. Vayikri alakim la'or yoim. The Pasuk says in Bereshis. Hashem called light day. V'lachoshech karalayla. And darkness he called night. Night is associated with darkness. Day is associated with light for the obvious reason. That the sun is shining and then the sun sets. But in yoim itself, there's yoim hazeh. Which means the day is in a state of zeh. So the yoim is in a state of this. So you have here a double revelation. It's a time of day, which is generally a time of vision. You can see. Remember, again, we have to go back to a time before Thomas Edison. When the sun set, it was dark outside. Nightlife was not nightlife. Nightlife was night sleep. You went to sleep at night. Dawn broke, sun rose, you woke up. Yeah. In the time of the Chazal, there was no waking up late. The commission says, If you were a prince and you were a king and you had nothing to do, you could wake up at, uh, at 9 o'clock. Sovzman Krishma. That's when Sovzman Krishma is. Today it's even later. Huh? Yeah. 
10 and uh, in Detroit, 1040. <laughs> That's when the Malachim sleep till. And today, a lot of Jews are B'nai Malachim, Baruch Hashem. So, but, but you woke up with sunrise. Sunset meant you went to sleep, like the animals still do. You know, you watch the deer, you watch the chickens, you watch the birds. <laughs> they, uh, Thomas Edison didn't change their life. They're still synchronized with nature. You know, So, Yom is associated with a time when you could see. Lila is a time when you don't see. When a person doesn't see, what happens? There's stumbling blocks. If there's Khalila ditch, a person could fall into the ditch, a person can trip. A person is not aware of the realities in front of them, so therefore I can stumble. What does this mean psychologically? This doesn't have to do with daytime or nighttime. It means sometimes I'm in a state where there's clear awareness of where I have to go, where I don't have to go, where I should end up, where I shouldn't end up, what I have to avoid, what I don't have to avoid. Not just in physical terms, but also in spiritual and emotional terms. And then there's a time of Lila, which is confusion. I don't know. I don't know what to avoid. I don't know where to go. I may be completely lost. I may be going in the opposite direction of where I need to go. I may be ending up in places I don't have to end up with in. I may be bringing in things to me that I don't have to bring in. It's a state of Lila. In Yom itself, there's Yom Hazeh. Yom Hazeh means the Yom is in its most... Revealed fashion. So in a spiritual state, in a spiritual sense, this is what he says, this is the hisgalus, hisgalus, alakusi, hisbarach, ke'ilu ein of It becomes as real as the eyes detecting it. I was having a conversation, uh, I was giving a lecture, there was Project Inspire a few weeks ago, there was a Shabbos Project Inspire. It's part of Eshat Torah's work for... for for Kiruv and so forth, to have a Shabbaton uh, once a year, and I was invited, so I was speaking, I was giving a lecture, so the question, there was questions uh, and conversations. An interesting question came up. Somebody said, we were actually talking about souls and afterlife and all that. So somebody asked, which is a very famous question, you know, how can you even relate to these things as real, God or soul, when you don't see it? You know, come on. It's like, it's all speculation. It's all, uh, you don't even see it. Which is a, it's a good question people ask. I don't see it. That's what he's addressing here. But if you listen to the words, you have a very powerful, powerful message. And, you know, in the 1700s or 1797, I guess you can understand it somewhat. But today, we have the privilege of having a certain perspective. And that is, forget completely the world of religion or Judaism. Completely. If you would ask any scientist, even uh, the most, uh, I'm not talking about a world-class, uh, a world-class scientist or physicist. I'm talking about even on the most basic level. You can even ask a high school graduate, as long as, as, long as he went through the material. A high school graduate who learned even the basic stuff. Certainly a scientist. Ask, in terms of physical matter, what is more real? Which parts are more real? If you want to describe the world. That which we see or that which we don't see? The dimensions of the body or of matter that we see or that which we don't see? The most basic understanding of science and physics today is that what we don't see is far more accurate, far more describing the nature of reality than what we see. Because what we see is basically a very restricted 
narrow form of reality the way it is experienced by our eyes. And this is literally in every area of reality. So when somebody says, what I don't see is not real, it's completely uh, out of touch with what's happening. I mean, germs. (laughs) Take germs. Are germs real? So unfortunately, for much of history, they didn't know about germs. They didn't know about uh, bacteria. They didn't know about it. So there's a black plague, a black plague that kills... uh, Tens of millions of people. Different viruses, different viruses that wiped out communities and cities. And now they were looking, who poisoned the wells? Go explain how microbes travel. What about cells? Are cells real? (laughs) What about genes? Are genes real? (laughs) What about neurons? Are neurons real? Is DNA real? (laughs) Right. Okay, but we had to have the tools. We had to develop the tools. For a long time, we couldn't. What about atoms? And in each molecules and atoms, and what about subatomic particles? Huh? Yeah. Electricity, magnetism, nuclear force, positive force, negative force, gravity, and so forth. So we're getting closer, creating more tools to be able either to experience it or to see it at least with some level of imagination. Sometimes I maybe can't see it with my eyes, but I could use different tools. Or sometimes I can deduce that something exists because of the measurements, because of the impact, because of the influence and so forth. But to say that what I see with my eye, that determines reality. My eye doesn't see it is basically a very primitive way of describing reality. Everybody understands this today. It really goes to a much more, it's really much deeper than this, because the question today is actually the other way around. If what I see has any reality. <laughs> That's today the question. It used to be, is there anything else outside of what I see? Today, is there a cloud something that you see? Yeah, I always thought that colors were real. That's what I thought when I grew up. I thought brown was brown and white was white and yellow was yellow. I mean, at least my mother thought so. Vaharaya, people got upset that at the bar mitzvah the napkins were the wrong color. If if if, if colors are not real, why are you upset about the napkins? Is the haraya that colors are real? Yeah. But today you'll read any basic uh, explanation of colors. They'll say vu vos ven. It's all a cholim shecholmu acherim alacherim. It's basically. It's basically the way the photons collide right, with the receptors in the retina of your eye and your brain wants to make sense of different wavelengths of light, so your brain calls it a color. And that's why there are colors we can't even see, the birds see. Why are the colors we can't see? Because we don't have the tools at the moment to be able to interpret it, and therefore it doesn't exist. So what we're seeing is only the way our brains interpret it, interpret the reality that comes across to us and our bodies pick it up and our brains interpret it this way. So it's actually the other way around. So what does spiritual sensitivity mean? Spiritual sensitivity means changing from a dynamic of yesh me'ayin to ayin me'yesh. That's what it is. When we're born, when we grow up, it's yesh me'ayin. When I'm a baby, it's on one level. I get older, it's on another level. You know, when I'm an infant, 
I know my mother's, a certain part of my mother's body and a certain needs, instinctive needs. I get a little older and my consciousness can expand. I get a little older and my understanding can include needs that are not so visible and tangible, and so on and so forth. For a four-year-old, a great reward may be a fire truck or a game or, uh, or a lollipop or cotton candy. For a 40-year-old, also cotton candy and a fire truck and a game and maybe some ice cream too. But some, at least some, can understand that there are, are larger rewards or deeper rewards and so forth. But this is all still within the world of Yesh From a deeper spiritual sensitivity place, though, ultimately the process gets reversed. The process gets reversed and we understand that it's exactly the other way around. That that which I'm experiencing with my eyes and with my five senses is really a very, very diminished form of reality that is being restricted and trickles down in a way that my brain could make sense of it in this particular way. So I impose this interpretation on it. So basically, when we come back to the question, the famous question, if the tree falls, does it make a noise if I'm not there? Obviously not, because the definition of the noise that it creates is really an encounter between the vibrations created by the tree falling and my eardrums picking it up and my brain interpreting it as this way. So is it true? Are colors true? Yes, they're true in the sense that many of us interpret it that way and therefore we could sell it and present it that way and it works. But the more sensitivity there is, the more we understand that it's exactly the other way around. It's not yesh meyayin. It's really ayin meyesh. Because the closer, the more you trace it back to its source, the closer you're getting to the real yesh. And the closer you're getting to the real yesh, ultimately, the outer interpretation is seen as more superficial. And just a layer of the way it's restricted and it comes down in a particular world to be interpreted a certain way. That's the idea, ki'ilu ein of royas. That yoim hazeh is a very deep, deep concept. It's basically where godliness becomes the real thing. Two people walk into a house. One person just sees the house. That's what they see. The architect walks into the house. The contractor walks into the house. He sees something I'll never see. He immediately looks at it from a contract, from the contractor's point of view. He notices things I won't even notice. And he'll marvel at the genius of certain decisions that were made. The architect walks into the house and he sees a whole different house. We're looking at the same house. He sees a whole different house. You'll have the physicist, the physicist walking into a house, putting it under a uh, microscope, and it's a whole different house. And then you'll have the physicist who will say there's no house. <laughs> As one of the great physicists said, when you leave your house, it doesn't exist anymore. Why? I wish I could tell it to the telephone company and the the, the, the gas and electronics company. They don't believe it. But what is it? The idea is that every reality that we're perceiving is a marriage of two things. It's the reality, the way my brain can interpret it, and it gives it this definition and this description. The moment I leave it, 
it in their language it collapses back into probabilities. It collapses back into probabilities. And then when I come back, it's there. Now, so what's real? Of course it's real. It's real from my perspective. As our perspective, as our perspective expands, we start learning the opposite. That the whole world is the yesh amiti, the real yesh, is the divine energy, the infinite energy. So when you really want to address something, you can address it from a place of yesh, and you can address it from a place of ayin. From our perception, what does it mean to address it from a place of yesh? That which I see, that which I hear, that which I touch. The five senses. As my consciousness expands, my spiritual sensitivity expands, it can go deeper and deeper and deeper, and then it becomes actually the reverse. That the ultimate yesh is the source of all sources, where all of its truth exists, and everything else, it exists, but it's like ayin. Ayin means it doesn't occupy significant space, like the ray of the sun in the solar core. That's the state of yoim hazeh, of revelation. So when we look at the world, it's oilam is bepshitus. There's an expression, oilam is bepshitus. Elakus behischachus. And he's describing elakus bepshitus va oilam is behischachus. This is a famous expression in Chabad literature. Oilam is bepshitus means the simplicity. What do I feel intuitively the world? Godliness is a chiddush. It's novel. And then there's the perception where elakus is bepshitus. That's reality. And Oilamis is a chiddush. It's, it's a novelty. But, so we call the world, yesh, ayin. The source is called ayin, which means nothingness. Because from my perception, that's what I'm looking at, nothing. It's very hard even for us to entertain this, because our tools define us. We are thinking through the tools that we have. So when we're even thinking about yesh, ayin, it's even when we talk about this, it's with the tools that experience the world as yesh and the divine as ayin. But that itself we have to be sensitive to. We have to understand this. Mm-hmm. But then there's Laila. Okay, now you'll relate to it. Laila is choyshech and It's a time of darkness. You see nothing. What's pshat? You see nothing. It's not only talking about, obviously, a person who sees nothing, but even somebody who could know, on some level, be appreciative that there's godly something of a cause. But this is a state called histalkus hamoichen. Histalkus hamoichen means the awareness departs, meaning the enoi nitfus bemoichen. It's not fully grasped in his brain. Don't, there's a state of Lila, which is push darkness. A person is completely confused and uncertain about life. They don't know if they're coming. They don't know if they're going. They could be walking and go straight into a ditch because that is the place of reality. So therefore, they have no perception. They have no vision of life. But he says it could also be a state of a person who has knowledge. But if it's not really grasped, there's no aha. You can hear, but this is called heaven and dead heaven. It's not nitfas, but it's also laila. But even when a person is in a state of laila, there's balaila hazeh and balaila hahu. 
Zeh, as we said, the second person. Who is third person? Zeh means this. Who means he? Or he in, in feminine, he, or who in the masculine? When do you say who? Who amarli? If he's not here. He's told me. He amrali. If you're right here, right? I'll say ata amartali. You told me. You. Or zeh means zeh. It's here. But who means it's nister. It's concealed. That's why third person in Hebrew grammar is who. So there's balayla hahu and there's balayla hazeh. Balayla hu is a double form of darkness. It's night and it's concealed. It's gone. Balayla hazeh means it's night, but I could still say there's something here even though it's night. So he says, even if a person is he can still come to the state of zeh halayla, halayla hazeh lel shemurim, balayla hazeh, v'achlu balayla hazeh, like you said, manishtana halayla hazeh, that it should still be in a state of l'noichach. L'noichach means in my presence. The hinex, if the posseg says, meloich haloritz kvayda in Yeshaya, we say it in the morning, the earth is filled with his glory, shu zivis pashtus. Kvaydoi represents glory, ziv, like the rays of the sun. It's the rays of the sun. It's a spashtus. It's an expansion of ray, of light. Uksiv the pasuk says Yirmiya says It's ani the heaven and earth's I fill ani, not just kvoidai. Maloi chalar it's kvoidai means the kavoid fills the earth. Ani means I fill heaven and earth. Ushneim emes. It's not a contradiction. Both are emes. Why? The truth is, he fills heaven and earth himself. But the, the physical kalim that a person has often blocks it. It eclipses it. I can't experience it. They say a beautiful story about the Kajnitz Magid. The Kajnitz Magid, before he passed away, I think I shared it with you once, he turned to his son, it was on his deathbed, he turned to his son and he said that I do not see the physical matter. I see the Kaya Chaliki, I see the divine everywhere. Ah, that's a separate mice. He said, can gif. In, in Polish, he said, can gif. I already don't have a body. I don't have a body. So his son, the son of the Rabbi Saul of Kajnitz, touched his father's hand. And he said, what do you mean you don't have a body? I touched your hand. What do you mean you don't have a body? So he said, the tapst mit gif fills the gif. The tapst mit gif fills the gif. What are the tools you're using to touch me? You're using your goof to touch me. That's what you feel. So it looks like... It's really a statement. It's a it's a it's a But it's a statement in physics. MS. It's a statement in physics. The tapsmith gift fills the gift. What are the instruments that you're using to describe reality? What? Tell me. You're using the fingers that you're aware of, that your brain is interpreting the sensation. Yeah. What, what, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? I know what you are. What am I feeling? My fingers touch you. They send a message to the brain, right? My brain has been programmed according to its own limitations. And the brain says, mm, psh, a goof. <laughs> wow, that's reality? Really? And what if I would be able to expand my consciousness? I could touch you. And I can also feel that there's 40 trillion cells. 
And I can also feel, I don't know how many atoms are moving around with endless, endless speed, and then deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, until a chelik elekami mahal, a soul which is a chelik elekami mahal. But but we never question the instruments that we use because my instruments are always good. All scientific progress happens when you start questioning the instruments you're using to define reality. All spiritual progress happens that way. What are the instruments I'm using? That brain is... Uh... We don't, we don't experience it uh, without physical reality. The brain. Brain. We don't. We, we can't. We don't have five senses to experience the brain, but we, we know it's something there. Yeah. To speak. That's one of the yeah. spiritual tools. To yeah. There is somebody behind the words. Yeah. So the goof could be a master. Now, the, so the. But it's very important because he also says the other thing. This is how we were created. This is how we're supposed to be created. It's not a mistake. This is, this is the process of creation. The Balatanya once said, The Ebrister had gemacht for Ruchnius Gashmius. All of creation is Hashem converting energy into matter, if we want to use that language. So that a Jew should convert matter back into energy. All of the world is Ruchnius. It's Ruchnius converted into Gashmius. That's the great miracle of creation. It looks like a physical world. So what? We now take the physical world and we revert it back to what it is. Within the world of the Gashmi. Lahavdil on another level, the father of nuclear physics is a man named Max Planck, the father of theoretical physics, a Nobel Prize winner. And he once said, I once saw a, a, an article of his or an essay of his, he says this, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but it's pretty close. He says, I will never say that uh, consciousness is a derivative of matter. Matter is a derivative of consciousness. Yeah. Now, our perception used to be matter is reality, and now we feel about it different ways. It's exactly the other way. Consciousness doesn't come from matter. Matter comes from consciousness. Everything starts with consciousness. It's the awareness that creates the matter. And the deeper you go into the matter, you will find more consciousness, more consciousness, more consciousness, and then a world of only consciousness. The problem is, if I would live in a world of only consciousness, I would step on the sidewalk. Right? What am I stepping on? I'm stepping on iron. By me, the sidewalk is the real yesh. Everything else is iron. The cement is yesh. The tar is yesh. Because that's the perception we live in. But essentially, it's a product of consciousness. That's Bayoimaza. Then there's Balaila. But in a state of Balaila, he says there could be Balaila Hazza. What's Balaila Hazza? So he says, Hagufka's must. Kvoida is the ray which gives life to the world. Which is that which can be grasped. So that the world and the person should be able to align themselves with Hashem. And everything in His presence becomes Kaloy Chashev. It doesn't have separate significance because of the kvoide that the person grasps. So there's animale 
my essence fills the whole world. It's beyond Ziv. What's Ziv? Ziv is the way you can grasp his presence. Just like with the sun. There's no way if the ball of the sun would come into people's lives, we would end up as toast and more. The ray of the sun allows us to experience its warmth, its light, its, uh, its, its impact, its influence in terms of photosynthesis, in terms of allowing all vegetation and produce and warming the world and brightening up the world and so forth. Why? Because we get to have a ziv. And the ray I could relate to. The ray of the sun I can absorb, I can process, I can incorporate. The sun itself is too intense. We wouldn't be able to have a relationship with it. That's why we're thankful for the distance between the earth and the sun. The distance is almost, is not almost, it's a perfect distance. Because if it would be further away, we would freeze. If it would be closer, then we would be our own breakfast uh, toast, as I said. So that distance is perfect. So that's a mashlach. What's kvaidai? The ziv, the hispashtos. The hispashtos means that which the world can grasp within its kalim. We can appreciate the fact that electricity exists even if we don't see it. We can appreciate the fact that germs exist even if we don't see it. Because we see the impact, we see the influence. Anybody ever saw electricity here? But you put in the plug and somehow your phone charges and you go home. What just happened? You ever saw electricity? You saw the impact, you saw the influence of it. That's considered real. So kvoidai is the concept of tfisa, that there could be a certain grasp of divinity within the kalim, which can create that type of oneness in the world. Even though it may still be a state of night relative to the essence, still there could be the concept of zeh, why? That's the power of a Muna. As he will explain soon, that a person believes with complete faith and the Muna is Zaka. It's refined. It's pure. A Muna is like the Kayach of Re'iyah. It's like the Kayach of Vision. It's like seeing. The Muna is a certain powerful awareness, even though a person doesn't see it with his eyes. That is as true as a person sees. So therefore, even though it's a state of Balayla, we're not talking a case state of his galus mamish, like he said before, where the world becomes ayin and the divine becomes yesh. That's a state of yoim hazeh. Even in a state of Laila where a person is in darkness. And even if they know, but it's not fully grasped, because as a shamayim it's animale, the goof blocks. And even if there's a ziv, it's only a ziv, and sometimes that also could be concealed. It's a state of Laila. So I don't have the ani, I don't have the kvoide, I don't have the ziv. Nonetheless, he says, the goidel ha'amunah, the amunah of a person, even in a state of Laila, could turn the Laila into zeh. That even if there's a state of Laila, I know that there's no awareness. I know that there's a state of confusion. I know that I'm not, I'm not seeing, I'm not feeling, I'm not experiencing. But the goidel ha'amunah, the amunah, that a Jew has amunah shleim azako that's the power. A faith, the power of a munas kilu ain of royas mamush. So the balayla becomes a state of zeh. Ach tzarich lozeh b'chines chaymer ulaveinim 
When did they come to Balayla Hazah? After being in Egypt. They worked with Chaimer mortar and Levain in bricks. 210 years. And that work allowed them to become Balayla Hazah. Today you also need it. And here he quotes a fascinating Zoyar. Bechaimer. What does it mean to work with Chaimer? Dokal v'chaimer. Bilevenim, do libun hilchisa. Bechol avoyde basada, do braisa. It says in Egypt they worked with Chaimer. Is uh, mortar. Levenim, they made bricks. Kol avoyde basada, they worked in the field. So he says spiritually, Bechaimer means kal v'chaimer. When a Jew learns and he develops the idea of Kalvachemer, what's a Kalvachemer? Kalvachemer is the first of the 13 principles through which we interpret Torah, which basically allows us to compare halachas. Levenim comes from the word libun, hilchasa, bleaching out, whitening the halacha, figuring it out. The halacha, every Gemara becomes confusing. Pilpul, shaklavatari, you have to make a Kalvachemer, libun hilchasa. Kalavoyde basad is braises. The word braises, bar yesa, was brought from outside. The Mishnah is the inside, the Braisa was from the outside. That's Kol Avoyde Basada. So the Golos Mitzrayim B'chavu Levin was the preparation for Malay Hazah. And then today you have it, you don't have to go actually in the Chaim Levinim on the physical level. The Maternish, the, the, the toil, the sweat could be in Torah. The Mishnah says, "Kol makabel elavay Torah, mavidim menu el derecheretz." If you accept the yoke of Torah, they remove the oil of derecheretz, the yoke and the stress of business. But achol apayrik b'menu meyel of el Torah, neisl of el derecheretz. But sometimes there's a state where a person doesn't have the old Torah, doesn't have that relationship, and then they have the yoke of derecheretz. Achafshu waisik b'derecheretz. So now you have a person. Who can't work a whole day in Kalva Chayman Libun Hilchis? He's Oisik Bader Cheretz, meaning he's in a physical world. He too can also reach the state of Halaylaza. That even in a state of Laila, where there is darkness and confusion, there could still be the experience of Hazah, as he will go on to explain. Bezer Hashem will uh, conclude tomorrow. The point is, when you're there, you the house exists for you. When you leave, you're not there, so it doesn't exist. That's the point. Of course, you leave our house every day. But it's a very deep idea. It's not a you know, actually, not spiritualist. This is physicists say this, not religious people. Yeah. <laughs> physicists say this when you leave your house. It's not there. When you come back, it comes back. In other words, it's a product of your mind. Your mind interprets reality in a certain way, and it says this exists, just like colors. Does the color exist? The color doesn't exist. For me, it exists. It's basically, everything emits light, okay? The light has a wavelength, or it has photons. It comes to my eye. I have what's called photoreceptors, a camera. I'm toy for
I pass on the information to the brain. The brain. Huh? The color that it doesn't absorb is what bounces back. So it's, it's everything but that color. Mom, it's not that color. You see something black, that means that it didn't absorb the black, it reflects it back to you. So that wavelength which hits the eye is that which it's not. Right. Very good. You're saying the wavelength is that which it's not. Otherwise, it absorbs it and it becomes invisible. You're saying what it absorbs becomes invisible. Right. So what bounces back is that which So he's saying even more. He's saying actually the color is everything that it's not. Because that which it absorbs doesn't come to us. <laughs> so when we're describing it, this is red, this is brown, this is blue, it's actually not it. Very good. It's what it rejects. So what we're describing is the ultimate yes. This is red. I'll swear to you. I'll swear in God's name it's red. And I'm right. I'm right. Of course I'm right. Because everybody sees it as red. Because you see it as red. And it could be sold as red. You can make a lot of money. <laughs> No, it's, it's actually everything but red. It's right? everything it but red. It red. rejected the red, and that's why it became red for me. Right. Is it, whatever is red, it was absurd in it. I don't mean to drive you crazy, but it's a very good muscle because it tells us, it tells us that what we're calling yesh and ayin is not so simple. <laughs> You know, it's it's mamish the reverse. The more yesh, the more ayin. The more ayin, the more yesh. That's the truth. The ruchnis is more real than the geshem. The geshem is just a very tiny, minute way of processing it, which actually just doesn't describe it even. <laughs> It's that which I could relate to, just like with colors, and even much, much deeper, because here it's a fault, here, here it's Gashmis, and here we're going to the world of Ruchim. Now, the idea here is not to say that there's no colors. <laughs> That's not the part. The idea is to expand and appreciate the world in which we live in, and have the ability to build and expand our consciousness. Yeah, they're both real. And all of Yiddishkeit, all of Yiddishkeit, this is where Yiddishkeit begins. Yeah, that's where Yiddishkeit begins. very similar to Buddhist idea that they're meditating all day, they're leaving everything. It's not at all similar to the Buddhist idea. The Buddhist idea, not to do with Buddhism. The Buddhist idea is about segregation from the physical world. All of Torah and mitzvahs is in the physical world. You put on tefillin with physical oil. And you give stalker with a physical money and a physical chicken. You take trumas and maestros from physical tomatoes and this. No. It's not an escape from You're not escaping the yesh. You're being megala, the emes of the yesh. You're not escaping the yesh. The tachlis of Judaism is, take marriage for example, right? The, the Dalai Lama doesn't get, the, 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 the tachlis is segregation. If, if you could sit on a mountain and meditate for 50 years, that's your tachlis. Like Yiddishkeit really it's not. But it's not the ultimate eye. <laughs> it's not the ultimate eye. Yeah, there's a reason that Jews are attracted to it. 
There's a reason that that millions, hundreds of thousands of Jews are attracted to it, because they like the spiritual the, the spirituality of it. It's very ruchnis, and they they're yearning for ruchnis. But it's it's ruchnis that's a certain limited type of ruchnis because it's segregated. It's not mechaber. The tachlis is the synthesis. In other words, the dibra Torah kolashem b'neiadim is not a mistake. It's because the tachlis is lashem b'neiadim. The tachlis is not not lashem b'neiadim. So that's why we speak about. So it's completely different. Yeah, in other words, the fact that we were created this way is not a mistake. It was supposed to be that way. It's not a tragedy. It's not Nebuch, we're all living in a lie. That is the Avoida. This is the Avoida Sasham. In Russia, there was a famous joke when the lector says there is no God. I can prove it to you because you don't see it, you don't touch it, you don't think. So, and everybody's convinced except one Jew who lifts up his arm and said, the lecture that doesn't have a brain. Why? So you cannot see it, you cannot touch it. So it says in Zohar that What's Kalvachimer? Kalvachimer means not everything in Allah is clear. You have to learn out from Kalvachimer. What's Kalvachimer? Madoch in a case, right? Which is more kal, which is more lenient. We have this halacha. So for sure, chaymer, in a case, for example, the Torah says that you're not allowed to have relations with your daughter's daughter. So with your daughter, yeah. So madach, with your daughter's daughter, not, because it's the daughter of your daughter. For sure, with your daughter, kalva chaymer, your own daughter. Right? So no, that's, the, well, because it's not clear. The Torah doesn't say clearly. So we have a kalva chaymer here, and a gzeir shavah here, and a binyanav here. But the idea of kalva chaymer is that you have to you have to work. But that's like similar to Chaymer. you got to make cement. And then there's Levenim. Levenim, the Libun Hilchisa. None of the halachas are clear. We're learning now yesterday. Bracha Achroina Kaima, yeah? What's a Bracha Achroina Kaima? Is it pass? Is it this? Pass Shivas Aminim, yeah? Machlaikas Rishai. Shinoi Makam, Chazal, so you have to make a new Bracha. When? Is it always? Is it only if you need a bracha? I'm just these examples. Libun Right. You have to libun. Libun means bleach. Malabin, bleach. You have to wipe when you whiten the garment, right? Malabin is one of the malachas of Shabbos. You take a halacha, it's dark. It's it's brennan. Yeah, libun, like with kashering. You gotta you gotta bring out uh, the clarity of it and you gotta whiten it, you gotta make it bright, clear. Because every halacha is shrouded in mysteries and layers of complexities. And then there's Kolavoy the Basada, represents the Brises. Brises from without, Bar Yesa, Bar means outside in Aramaic. So he's saying that the, the Avoid in Golis Mitzrayim was the preparation for Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So through Torah, a person could reach the state of Balai Lahaza. What about if a person doesn't have El Torah, so they have El Derecheret? So that's going to be the next step. You understand? It was purposely this way. Purposely. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.